Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This time, the question is, should our code of conduct be interactive? I've talked about code a few times on the podcast so far, and it's certainly one of the topics that I like to speak about most frequently. Uh, And this is a question that comes up uh, more and more often. And by interactive, uh, I think let's kind of talk a little bit about what we mean there. What I mean, and I think what most people mean these days, is that it's a digital document, a document that you can interact with, a document that has clickable functions uh, to navigate the document, but also will have uh, what we call either learning aids or comprehension aids, items like um, Q&As and uh, radial dials and, and uh, different things that you can push or manipulate on the digital page, on the computer or on the, uh, on the digital device that uh, will cause the code to interact with you, uh, play a video or answer a question or uh, provide a link to a- another document. So first of all, that's, I think, what we're talking about when we're talking about interactive. Certainly codes that don't, uh, don't exist or aren't or are physical documents, paper documents, still have features these days, design features, that make them more interactive in that sense and that there's color and there are photos and they're, they're well laid out and designed more often than not these days. And, and, and I think that, you know, obviously that is a type of interactivity, but for our purposes, I'm talking about digital interactivity. I think there are really three questions to answer that you have to answer for yourself and for your organization to determine whether uh, an interactive code, uh, a, a more digital, modern code, sometimes people will say, although I think that's maybe unfair, is what, you're, what you really want or what really fits your organization. So the first of those questions, and it's a real practical question, is how do you intend for your employees to interact with this interactive code? Do you anticipate that the majority or, or near majority or 99.9% or how many of these individual employees are going to be looking at this document exclusively as a digital document uh, that are going to be going to the intranet site uh, within your organization? or otherwise uh, download this document on a uh, secure device and, and, and be able to use it. That, the sort of technical aspect of uh, how the code will be used is probably your, your first and, and important threshold question. If you're, f- for example, uh, we had a client uh, not too terribly long ago who is in the uh, oil field services business. And so many of their employees and the stakeholders that are going to be responsible for reviewing and understanding the code are going to be in remote locations, may or may not have access to email in certain circumstances. And so they anticipated right off the bat that they're going to be printing many versions of this document in several different languages and and actually physically hand it out. And so interactivity is less important for this particular organization because of the ratio of employees that are going to still be reviewing a paper document versus those that would have regular access to a digital document is high. And so so it doesn't make sense for them to invest their resources in creating a, a top quality code of conduct on interactivity. 
another sort of subset of that question about how your your um, employees tend to, are, are going to interact is to ask yourself, do you really know <laughs> who looks at your code and how and why? If you're a public company, as you well know, your code of conduct is ne- needs to be up on your website. So it's not just the employees themselves and, and how they access the code, but are there other stakeholders out there? Whether those are third parties that have to certify that they're following the code of conduct or whether that's uh, consumers or, or other partners. So, so make sure that you've, you know, you've got everybody in the room that you're considering when you a- ask this first question. The second question is, who are you? What sort of organization are you? Are you an organization that embraces uh, technology and design that uh, you see in these sorts of codes of conduct? A good example here is uh, one of the most interactive codes uh, that I'm f- familiar with is the LinkedIn code. Uh, LinkedIn's been recently acquired by Microsoft, but they still have their own code of conduct, and you can find it online. And it has navigation. It has these interactive learning aids we mentioned earlier. It's still a PDF. It's still a document that can be printed. It's a document that can be saved on a device or or downloaded. So it's not a, a full-on web development, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. So it's not uh, so it does it's not as interactive as a as as you might see some codes, but it's still relatively interactive and still can serve the function of being a document, a PDF that can be printed if if need be by employees that need to read it offline. So this who are you question also is what uh, how do you normally communicate with your employees? Uh, are your employees used to getting digital messaging, videos from the CEO? Is there uh, an internal social media platform? We see more and more of that, sort of these private Twitters um, that 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 uh, many organizations have. If you have an organization that embraces technology and embraces interactivity in their general day-to-day workflow, uh, then then it probably makes more sense to have an interactive code of conduct than if you're a more traditional organization where there's not a lot of digital interaction to begin with, other than email and 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 sort of the necessary pieces for for any operation to be operational these days. But if your organization is one that does embrace that change, then that's worth considering. And this is also a design element too, to some extent. Uh, Interactivity, although uh, not strictly um, design, really does go hand in hand with organizations that, that like to have more modern and crisp design to their communications. So a big number two question to ask is who are we? What are, what, how do we normally communicate? How do we normally interact around not just compliance and ethics, but communication generally? Uh, and if the answer is, is pretty traditional, then perhaps uh, interactivity is not uh, something you want to consider, or at least it, it, can, it can help you determine how much interactivity makes sense. Maybe you want to have some navigation tools. Maybe you want to have one or two interactive learning aids, but you don't want to have one on every page. Those are things that all kind of fall into line when you ask that question about what kind of organization you are. And then the last question is, what kind of internal resources, IT resources or design resources do you have? Because interactivity comes in many different flavors. There are full-on web developments where a code of conduct is completely interactive and it lives on the 
intranet. It lives as a as its own custom designed web application. It may also be on available on handhelds, but again, it's a custom designed app, if you will. Some organizations have gone that way, but the question is: is if you work with a third party. If you don't have those resources internally that can maintain that, then when you want to update that code or make changes to that code on an iterative basis, that's going to complicate things. If you come down the scale a little bit, uh, one of the things that's neat about the Adobe PDF format that we're all familiar with, that many of our policies and codes are already saved as, uh, as we speak, whether they're interactive or not, is that uh, Adobe does have some interactive elements. And now it's not going to be able to do everything that a fully custom designed web development would do, but it will do a lot of those things. There are potentially compatibility issues there that you need to run down. So this third question is really important. What kind of resources do we have internally? How do we plan to maintain this? Does it make sense for us to invest in something that's interactive if we know that we're going to want to um, make changes and and uh, revise our code on a regular basis? And are we comfortable that we have the resources to do that or that we've planned to expend the resources to make that happen in the future? So those are kind of the threshold questions that I would I would ask if you are considering how interactive your digital code of conduct document will be in the future. I work with a lot of organizations on this uh, topic of of revising or rewriting or otherwise uh, reshaping code of conduct. And there are lots of different ways you can go. Um, You can dip your toe in a little bit and do some interactivity, or you can stay traditional. And I don't think there's any right answer. Like a lot of trends, I know that there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the, the necessity of making these documents fully digital and making them interactive. I don't think we're there quite yet, but um, it's certain, certainly anybody who's contemplating revising their code or rewriting their code or undertaking a code project, whether internally or with external help, these days you at least have to ask yourself these questions and, and at least have a discussion about interactivity. The numbers are changing every day, but we have uh, people, uh, particularly millennials, uh, coming into our workforce that have expectations around communications that that are changing. And the uh, addition of interactive elements in code of conduct documents is is only part of those those ongoing changes around communication. So it's worth considering. And these, I think, three threshold questions can help you determine sort of out of the gate where you stand generally. The upshot today is if you're considering interactivity for your revised or new code of conduct, there are three threshold questions that you need to ask. How do you expect that your employees and other stakeholders are going to interact with this code? Who are you as an organization and what is your communication style? And what are the internal resources that you have or that you're going to need to provision for if you add interactivity into your new code? Today, we have three questions with Ricardo Pelafone. Ricardo is the founder of Broadcat, a compliance startup that makes simplified task-oriented compliance training. Before starting Broadcat, Ricardo was the in-house investigations leader for a tech company in California and a sovereign-owned company in the United Arab Emirates. And before his in-house roles, he was a lawyer doing investigations at a large, large law firm. Recently, Ricardo has caught the attention of compliance professionals at events like the SCCE Compliance and 
Ethics Institute in Chicago back in September. If you were lucky enough to see him speak there or or hear him speak on a podcast or at other live events, I think you know what I'm talking about. He's brought kind of a fresh perspective to communications and training. Welcome, Ricardo. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. Uh, Ricardo, can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. So let me actually start off with this about how I got to this podcast. So I got to this podcast because I heard you say on an earlier podcast that the shirt we gave you at the SEC conference was the best swag of the entire conference. That is, defi- that is definitely true. It is a shirt that I am actually <laughs> wearing. I am wearing as we speak. Uh, it's, yeah, 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 I am actually wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we, when we designed those, we were thinking, you know, rather than have stuff that just said broadcast in huge letters, what would we actually wear? Because we wanted people to actually wear the stuff we gave. And we felt that would be a better, better return than something that just had the name emblazoned across it. But I'm thrilled to hear that. But yeah, so like broadcast is, is an effort to solve a problem that I had. And so I'll kind of work as to how I got to where I'm at right now. I have a background in academic background in psychology and then uh, obviously a law degree because I'm a lawyer or ex-lawyer, I suppose. After getting out of law school, I was initially a litigator and did that for like straight litigation for, uh, I guess, about a year and a half. And then I started to get into compliance investigations. The, the firm I was at at the time uh, was Walgatchel, this really, really big New York-based law firm. Um, had a pretty robust practice in their Dallas office for compliance investigations. So not really FCPA or, or white collar specific stuff, but just a really broad range of board level stuff. And I really, really loved that and did that for almost exclusively for, for several years. And then we got a request from one of our clients that was a uh, kind of, it's not, it's not a sovereign wealth fund, but it's a sovereign owned company in, uh, based in Abu Dhabi. And they're kind of like a private equity model where they own a whole bunch of stuff all over the world and operate it. And uh, they were looking, they were setting up a compliance program. They were trying to be very proactive on this and wanted someone that was an investigation specialist that could go out for six months and help them get the investigations program set up and um, convinced my wife that that was a terrific idea. And so (laughs) we... Uh, we moved over there, and two months into that, they uh, it turned into a full-time job, and so that turned into just about three years of of living in the UAE, which was fabulous. I mean, I think if if you're listening to this and you are interested in a long-term career in compliance and you're at a life stage where you can make an expat assignment work, you should definitely do it. The ability to I think compliance is only going to continue to get more international over time, and the ability to speak credibly to different parts of the world. And having lived that experience is really, really crucial. And frankly, like, there's a lot of really nice places that you can live and do the expat thing. Like, Abu Dhabi is really nice. Dubai is really nice. Singapore, Hong Kong, like, there is huge demand for compliance people there. And it's a nice gig. Um, so we did that for three years. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think that brings up a, a, a good point and one that I talk about pretty frequently, which is uh, not to have this be uh, a, a, a yet another bashing of lawyers, but I think oftentimes those of us that have a legal background don't have operational or practical experience and being able to kind of see the world, so to speak, is, is yet, yet another piece of that puzzle that like, yeah. gives you more gravitas when you're dealing with people who perhaps are are expats and and and, and are facing pressures using anti-corruption because that's a that's a commonly used example you know having some experience in in other parts of the world i think is is can be beneficial to a compliance officer because you can sort of walk walk the walk instead of just talking the talk 
Totally, totally. And, you know, look, you can, there's only so much you can do just by travel as well. And I think, you know, if you're looking 10 years ago, the expat opportunities were not quite as robust as they are now. You can, it's, I imagine it's not too difficult to go overseas at the moment because the demand is so high and the felt need for compliance is so high. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when, when after, after that move night was same job leading global investigations for a, a tech company out in California, Western Digital, it's a, a Fortune 200 that pretty much manufactured. If you've got a computer, there is a pretty good chance the hard drive inside of it was made by them. Or if you have a flash drive, it's a pretty good chance it's made by SanDisk, um, which they acquired last year. And so, like, um, in both of those roles, particularly WD, there's a lot of travel, but there is something fundamentally different about mindset when you have to, like, sell all your stuff and suddenly all of, your, all of the electronics you owned are the wrong voltage. And you have to, like, <laughs> buy a fridge, you know? And so, like, that was that's just a fundamentally different thing. So if, if you can swing it, like, if, like, I didn't have kids, it was, you know, my wife was, was game for it. She was able to find work in the Middle East. If you can make that work, I really recommend doing it. Not every, everybody will be able to, but if you can, it was, I, we're, today we're, we're still so glad that we did that. So that, that took me up to California, which I did that about, I think I was there about two years ago. And so the nice thing about having those jobs, the investigations jobs, like that piece of the compliance puzzle, is that you get to see at a really granular level where stuff breaks down. And one of the gaps I was seeing was that people were not making the connection between the trading part of the program and their like actual jobs. And, you know, just, like they're engaged and they could remember it. So it wasn't that they weren't paying attention or they couldn't remember it. They just didn't, could not figure out how to apply it to what they were doing, which is a different problem. And so that, that problem turned into broadcast because I saw there are a lot of folks focusing on engagement. You know, how do we get people engaged with training? But that usually wasn't the issue. Usually people were trying to pay attention to it. It's just that it was being presented in a way that just didn't transfer to their day-to-day job at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was not like, oh, you know, I didn't know what to do, but like I thought I knew what to do, but apparently the training you gave me didn't make clear how that applies to my job as an engineer or a salesperson or a marketer or whatever. And so what we do at Broadcat is make our training, instead of being focused on explaining risks to people, is focused on applying those risks to what people actually do day to day. Like they make sales, they approve invoices, they procure things as procurement professionals, and that's and, and integrating those risks into how that business process works. So we, our training materials are focused around things people do instead of abstract risks, because that's honestly the whole point of compliance. You want people to do their jobs the right way. And that, that's, the, uh, that's the type of material we create, but a little different route than I think when you talk to a lot of other training people who come up from more of an HR or training specific background. My background was actually in the investigations forensic side. Yeah. And, and I also, I think it's a different perspective in suggesting, you know, kind of meeting people where they are rather than delivering what the position of the organization is on a particular risk topic and, right. uh, and, 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 and getting to, uh, like you say, the everyday roles. I think one thing that kind of a follow-up to that is one, one thing that I can imagine some compliance officers and, and, and trainers being concerned about is, well, this sounds like it's awfully custom. Isn't that going to make it really difficult to do, uh, particularly with, you know, I have, you know, 25,000 people in my organization. When you're talking about this approach, how do you delay, kind of allay the concern of, of, of this being too, too custom or, or hard to accomplish because it's, 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 it could potentially sounds like it could be difficult. Yeah. And so it is definitely harder to do this than to just talk about risk. Now, the difference is this will actually, this actually has a chance of work, of working, yes. um, you know, 
I mean, we've been telling people about risks for like 20 years and it hasn't really moved the needle. So, but so yeah, there, so there's a macro concern there and there's like a micro concern. And so the macro, like between companies and industries, you know, honestly, like if, whether you are in defense, whether you're in uh, technology, whether you're in healthcare, like healthcare, let's put that to the side actually. So any, any industry, like manufacturing, retail, whatever, everybody has a procurement team. Everybody has a finance team. Everybody has a sales team and a marketing team. And sure, everyone has, people use slightly different sales models. Some people sell direct, some people sell distributor, people market different ways. But fundamentally, you have the same types of people who have the same type of training. And those are the people that all the risk comes from. You know, everybody has, everybody has fundamentally two groups of people. They've got people that create risk on behalf of the company, which is how the company makes money. So those mm-hmm. are people that make your product, people that sell and market your product. And then you have gatekeepers, and those are people that control the risk and prevent it from spreading once it's in the company. So, you know, your lawyers, accountants, auditors, finance people, uh, HR to an extent. HR is kind of both of those categories. And, and, that's cons- and, and the tasks those people do are broadly consistent across companies. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if company to company, it actually isn't that much different. Like everybody reviews invoices, everybody runs procurement, that type of deal. When you're talking about companies of a certain scale, at least. Yeah. Um, now, within the company itself, that's the macro issue. So the micro issue is, okay, so I'm, I'm on board with this, but how do I do this? Because I've got like, you know, 25,000 people, right? And the first piece is like, you don't really have to do this for all 25,000 people. If all 25,000 people at your company are equally risky, you have a bad HR model. Like, <laughs> that is a big problem. Because realistically, you, you're, you should be leveraging your people's skill set. And the point of having a big organization is differentiation of labor. And so if everyone is, if you're treating everybody the same, then either you, your business model is totally jacked and that's going to be a problem or mm-hmm. your compliance training is wrong because not everybody has the same risk. And, and realistically, you see pockets of risk that you see pockets of high risk people in those frontline people and those gatekeeper people. But those are really knowable groups, and they're really small subsets of an entire company. You know, I, I, sometimes you talk to people, particularly if you're talking to folks that have um, like manufacturing or retail or something where you've got a substantial direct labor workforce, and they can get really focused on just the size of that. But if, the, the, if you've got a huge group of people that work in like the warehouse or on the assembly line, those are not your high-risk people. Mm-hmm. Like those are people that are risky for your environmental people and for your health and safety people and for your HR teams. But like, those are not the people that are really going to get you into trade control issues or yeah. into uh, anti-corruption or privacy issues because they're just not exposed to that risk. So, and I think the answer is really, you just, you take a risk-based approach to it or a, a risk-adjusted approach. And like, not everyone you have is risky and the people that are actually really risky where it makes sense to train them directly in what they do is relatively small. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And, and it goes back to, I think even those organizations that are still training on the risk facing model are, are to a certain extent trying to slice and dice who gets what topic so they're 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 yeah. breaking it up by topic but maybe not as much by role now if you could go back in time before you undertook uh, your current uh, role in, in 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 discussing this this new approach to communication and training and give your, your yourself one piece of advice that that would have been helpful what would that one piece of advice be so, so I'm going to give an answer. It's going to sound like like a startup answer more than a compliance answer at first, but I promise I will like bring this back around. Okay. <laughs> and, and so the advice is to like have a plan for what to do if everything works. Because as, so as a litigator and a compliance person by background, when I left my, you know, very safe 
in-house compliance job to broadcast, you plan for worst case scenario. So I had all these plans for, you know, what am I going to do if like nobody wants this and like how I'm going to handle my finances and like got my wife on board with all that and like all these different things, right? But I had no plan for what would happen if the other, the opposite happened, like if a lot of people wanted it right away. And mm-hmm. so when it took off faster than I thought, I got caught really, really flat footed. And so I've had to take basically a year to like catch up and build a team and turn what was like initially just like a cool idea into like a company with like strategy and direction and, you know, furniture and computers. Uh, <laughs> and so, and like, here's the lesson if you're like you're in house compliance, this, this happened to me a little bit when I was in house too. Don't worry so much about the worst case scenario where like no one listens to you that you fail to plan for the best case scenario where like everybody listens to you and they want more of what you are doing. Yeah. Because if you are in house, you do you will not get a year to play catch up. Yeah. So here's what I mean by that. Like, I, I, I could take a year to play catch up because there's a really big market for compliance stuff and I don't need to work with everybody to still build a high growth business. So if you called me and like we couldn't work with you, it's not good, but it's not like fatal either. But if you're in health compliance, your market is one company. And so if you do something really well and like your sales leader comes and is like, hey, we want a lot more of this right away. Can you like roll this out? You actually have to be able to do that pretty quickly because you get pretty much one bite at that apple. No, actually, I think that's a that's a really good point, because uh, we tend to be whether we come from a legal background or an audit background or an HR background, compliance professionals tend to be glass half empty folks. And so we're, we're much better at planning the bad contingency when everybody does what, what we what we sort of expect them to do, because we have that perspective on human nature and, and maybe yeah. don't plan for the for them really accepting the, the, the message that we're, we're bringing and, and either wanting more of it or, or bringing up, you know, maybe uh, gaps and controls and, and, and other issues that you uh, hadn't considered before that are, that are going to take resources. So I think that's a good point. Totally. And, and compliance people, we can get initiative happy too. So like we just way overcommit to all these very lofty initiatives without thinking, you know, what could happen if this first initiative really took off? Yeah. And like you got, you have to build that into your, you have to build that into your work plan on an annual basis. What would happen if this went really, really well? And like you said, like what, what would happen if suddenly our, you know, our engineers come and say, Hey, this is great. By the way, there's like 10 other controls that now we know a little bit, we want you to fix. And you're like, well, yeah. I can't cause I committed all this other stuff to our board. Yeah. No, I, a good one uh, going back to communication too. And, and I think your, your earlier answer that I see pretty frequently is people you know, there's been a big push in the last few years uh, around tone at the middle or, or reaching the middle yeah. and, and providing resources to middle managers. And the the projects that I've seen that have been unsuccessful typically try to bite, up, bite off more than what they can chew instead of saying, okay, yeah. well, let's, let's provide like three bullet points to line managers to relate to their reports every quarter you know, for, you know, this, uh, this part of the operation, like these two business operating units, rather than the whole, you know, okay, now we're going to send, you know, these elaborate PowerPoint presentations, and we're going to put in a data database for managers to report up to, and it's going to be part of their, their, their (laughs) annual review, and just, and it it whipsaws, and it whipsaws the entire uh, middle management organization, and it, and, and, and when it doesn't work, then you're not able to get, buy-in for for trying to try something different or try something a little bit more manageable later down the road totally totally no it's just and i think this i feel like this is a lawyer problem where um at least it was for me and i had to like 
and I, I'll say I had to break myself of it, but my boss when I was in house had to break me up, break me up. <laughs> and I'm glad he did because he was coming from a different background and just pounded it out of me. But it's, you know, as lawyers, you just want to plan everything to the hilt. And yeah. that's just, you know, what, what, what actually ends up happening in practice then is you plan it to the hilt and you do like one tenth of it because yeah. you have over planned and under executed because you just haven't planned for like the human element of it mainly because most of us are trained by law firms where everyone's like, well, you know, no problem, just stay until 2 a.m. and get it done. But that's not how things work outside of law firms. Yeah. Um, and you have to like explain for the fact that, like there's tons of different people and like they all have different motives and different needs and wants and their jobs are different. And so like you can't do everything just from the, the legal perspective, like when everyone at a law firm who does pretty much the exact same job. And so the challenge is, you know, if you overplan stuff, you get in this really nasty situation where you now have a record of what you thought you should do because you've mapped it all out and you didn't execute, which yeah. is weirdly the one thing lawyers tend to really focus on too is like, okay, everyone, if you're a lawyer, you know that a company shouldn't have a policy unless it can actually comply with it. And yet when we plan our own projects, we plan these massive projects that no human being at any company anywhere could possibly complete. Yeah, yeah. It's better to it's better to have a you know a, a smaller plan and have that victory and then build on that victory than to 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 bite off more than you can chew and then and then you're then you, ha- you you it's almost impossible to go back to those stakeholders and get them invested again once it hasn't worked out. So right. and the, the last uh, question I have for you today, uh, Ricardo, is if you could kind of peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball for us and. Uh, Tell us what you think one or two important trends in compliance and ethics over the next few years will be. Sure. I, I think what you will see is the death of best practices and the rise of the business case as the primary metric for a compliance program. Mm-hmm. And um, I know I think you've, you've seen me speak on this twice now, and I'm going to keep talking about it because it is definitely going to happen. And yeah. the sooner that we embrace this, the easier our lives are going to be. Um, and I think it's going to happen for a lot of reasons, but one reason in particular is because I think it just reflects the maturity of the profession. Yeah. Like next year is the 15th anniversary of SOX, and we are seeing, I mean, you're seeing now CCOs get the real opportunity to have a seat at the table and real clout and real authority and a real platform, but that also changes the expectations of them. Yeah. Like when you're, uh, when you're like a real fledgling profession, it makes sense that things like benchmarking and best practices are really our primary metric because what, you're still trying to figure out what the profession really is and what it's supposed to do. But we're like a couple decades past that now. And so yeah. when you are actually, you know, have a seat at the table and you're a senior executive and you're, you're sitting there with the other C-suite members, the metric is no longer like, what are you doing? And that's what best practices really measures. But the metric is like, does it work? And is it worth the money that we have spent on it? And that yes. is a much, a much harder standard than benchmarking because you know, for one thing, you have to use math. And like, that's anathema for a lot of us in compliance because that's why we went to law school because we did not like math. But like, at the same time, it's not, it's not like a mystical thing. I think, you know, you can hear people talk about measuring compliance effectiveness like it's this impossible, unknowable, like enigma but it really isn't. It just requires you to stop thinking of compliance as an abstract concept that exists outside of the business. Yes. When you think of it like that, you really can't measure it because then, that's that, then you're focused on what are you doing as a program instead of like, well, does it work? And compliance, it, compliance is the business. It's just a bunch of employees doing risky stuff the right way. That, that's, if you are compliant, that's what's happening. 
Yeah. And the tasks they are doing, they're knowable and they're trainable and they're auditable. And because they are, because of that, because especially because they're auditable, you can target them and measure them and then you can reduce them to dollars. And so, I mean, that, that's where I think we're going to move because as CCOs get more established, they're not going to, the questions that they get from the audit committee are going to start shifting from, you know, what do other people do to does this work? Is it worth it? Which is the same question they're asking of the CEO and the CFO and the CHRO and every other C-suite member that's, that's had a discipline that's been a little more established. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, and the other factor, uh, which has been on everyone's mind in the last month, too, is I think that you're going to have to move away when you're making the case for budget and when you're making the case for particular initiatives from the uh, worst case scenario, the, you know, the regulators are, are, are beating on the door. I don't think it's ever been as, as effective as I think some uh, people have thought it has been because for the people that are bad actors within an organization, and you know this, and anybody who's ever worked uh, an investigation knows this, they see the headlines as, you know, whether it's VW or Walmart or or Wells Fargo or whatever it might be, they see that as, as a lightning strike. And they don't ever anticipate that that's going to happen to them because they're much smarter, brighter, in a different, you know, we're in a different uh, industry. Nobody's looking at us. And and it's no matter how many companies get in trouble, no, no matter how big the millions or even billions of fines might be, that's just not going to be an effective metric anymore for selling right. a compliance for, program. Yeah. For anybody. I mean, like, uh, it's yeah. kind of like selling like Godzilla insurance to your board. Be like, sure, if Godzilla does attack, like, you'll be super glad that you had it. But the reason that that's like a spectacular event, because it's very rare and very unknowable. And so I think, I, I do think we got to get away from using these blockbuster fines to justify the program because one, you don't need to, you can justify, you can justify the program on a day-to-day basis or because we have this control in place, this is what we are saving in lost revenue, in internal fraud and in potential investigations because yeah. now we're catching stuff. And yeah. when you talk about these like just blockbuster fines instead, like those things are so future state and, and unknowable so um, if I was an executive and someone was was pitching, you know, fines as the metric here, and I was and I was an executive that was not motivated to care about compliance, right? So like that's not going to change that for me because what I'll hear is, oh, that's something that we might get in trouble for ten years later when I'll probably be retired or dead. Because realistically, if you're looking at a lot of these events that happen, when they hit the headlines, they become big events. It's a significant time after the conduct started, and so if I'm a bad actor in the executive suite. The fines are not going to move the needle for me. But if you can come in and say something like, hey, this is going to save you money, and you can say that stuff, like you just have to get really gritty with what you're measuring, that I think will get people's attention and move the needle. No, I, I think that's right. And, and it's, 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 again, going back to, I think your, your main point there is it's all part of the continued maturity and the change in expectations around what, what uh, compliance professionals bring to the table. And as they get more authority and have more access, uh, you know, that was been the big thing over the last 10 or 15 years is now, like you said, getting a seat at the table. Now you are, you, you know, you're at, at the audit committee, you're presenting your report on a quarterly basis. So the expectation, you know, the first thing was getting your foot in the door. Now that's yeah. done. And I think that's been well established. The expectations around proving the value and showing, showing the success of the program. And that's the thing that right. we're, we, as, again, as lawyers typically, and, 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 you know, again, I don't want to always beat up on lawyers, but as lawyers, typically we haven't been as successful at doing that because we retreat to, oh, we just don't want to be Walmart or we don't want to be Wells Fargo or whomever. 
Well, we also we're also getting used to being paid by the hour. And so like, as, I mean, like real talk though, like if you're a lawyer and you come up and it's not just lawyers, like it's anyone that's in a professional services environment, your main value metric has always been, I did some work, so you should pay me for it. But yeah. like when you are, but when you're in the senior executive levels of a company or like, I mean, even for me, where I guess I'm in the senior executive levels of my startup, right? The metric is not like I did something, but was it valuable such that people should, should pay you for it? There's lots of things that you can do where you work really hard, but they're not valuable to people. And so no one will pay you for it. And so the metric for your compliance program cannot be just trying really hard and doing stuff other people are doing. You have to be able to articulate why it was valuable to the company and why it was worth the money that was spent. And when you can articulate that, you will not have any budget problems because now you've moved it from this is a nice thing to do because the government kind of requires us to do it. We might get in trouble if we don't have it. We have an issue. And we've got extra money to like, oh, we save money by doing this. And, I, and those are things where even in a down economy, or even if the regulatory burden changes, you're going to still keep your headcount and your budget and your program because you've articulated why it's valuable from a business perspective, not just because other people are doing it. Absolutely. Well, Ricardo, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today and answering our three questions. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.